So Jesus, you lead us step by step and ask that you use the words of Scripture to guide us even as we leave here for the week that is to come. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Good to see you, 945. You made it for the, is the race still going on out there? You made it through all the cones and all the traffic revision and all that. It's uh, good to see you. Just before I preach, just want to let you know that um, later this week, I will go on an extended study leave until August. Uh, this is something we require of all of our senior staff every five years to kind of re- a time to study, a time to reflect, a time to learn some stuff, and uh, kind of restock the well of ideas. And I'm really grateful for this because creative energy is very different than other kinds of energy. So I'm grateful for this time that every five years that we have for our staff to to set aside for study and renewal. Uh, and, and I will be studying revival movements coming out of dying denominations because that seems strangely relevant to me. Now, I know sometimes that when the senior pastor isn't preaching, sometimes people don't come to church as much. I know that happens in other churches. <laughs> but not so you because you know that it is good for you to hear other voices, other perspectives than just me all the time. And while I'm gone, we're going to have some guest preachers as well as some of our own staff, like uh, our interim youth pastor, Daniel Triller. Every time he preaches, I get all these emails from people saying, can he preach some more? So this is your chance uh, to hear him as well as Rich and Kendi and Jesse and some guests that we'll have along the way. And we got a great summer sermon series planned for you based on verses that you said were meaningful to you, along with some brief testimonies from people in the congregation. And then when I get back, I'm going to start a sermon series for the fall that I am actually really excited to preach. I've already started composing some of the sermons, and I'm actually really excited for what I'm going to be talking about in the fall, and I think you're going to like it too. So keep coming. And when I get back in August, the elders are going to say to me, Scott, giving is up, attendance is up, all without you. What does that tell you? And that will provoke a small crisis in me, but I am saying bring that crisis on, all right? Okay, the sermon. Uh, as, as many of you know, I run every day. I have missed probably only three or four days of running in the last 35 years. It's called an addiction. And uh, one of my favorite ways to run is in eastern Washington on a summer's day when it's about 100 degrees outside, like at 2 in the afternoon. 100 degrees, I love to go running because I always end by jumping into the Columbia River, which is just icy cold and it just, it just feels so great. And imagining that awesome ending motivates me to do the run in the first place, which goes to show that the ending you imagine will shape the decisions you make today and can help you persevere through a difficult season. I've shared with some of you before that when my kids were really young, sometimes before I would discipline them, I would picture them coming home from college and actually wanting to talk to me, you know, that we would have that kind of relationship. And picturing that ending when they were in college, kind of changed the way I disciplined them in the moment. We've been looking at the first part of the book of Exodus through the lens of story because our lives are really like stories. They have cliffhangers, plot twists, all kinds of stuff. And every story needs a good ending. And this is the ending of this sermon series. And earlier this week, my my wife said, you know, it'd probably be good if it's a really lousy sermon because then everyone will be glad you're going away for a while. So I'll do my best. And when I talk about ending, a good good ending, I mean two things. First, the ending to our lives, right? Because, you know, when we die, we're all going to die. What will our lives have said? Now, we don't think about that very much because we are a death-denying culture, but it's all around, and, you know, sort of reminders are all around. Last month, I drove to Spokane, and, and as I was driving, this huge bug flew into my windshield, just went splat, I mean, just left this giant smear 
across my windshield. It was just, it was huge. I could hardly see out. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I think I just killed Tinkerbell, you know? And then that got me thinking. It set me a train of thought, you know, one of these days I'm going to go splat on the windshield of life, and what will my life have said? When it ends, what will it have said? What do I want? What, what can I picture for that? But when I talk about great endings, I don't just mean the end of our lives. I also mean great endings to the various chapters of our lives. What chapter are you in right now? School, marriage, parenting, career, retirement, some problem you're dealing with? Prayerfully imagining a satisfying conclusion can shape the decisions we make today. But not even just that, also just our weeks. Like our weeks will go better if you can kind of imagine today, come Friday, looking back, what will have made for a satisfying conclusion to this week. But here's the thing. There's a difference between happily ever after and a satisfying conclusion. Our idea of sort of happy is everything turning out exactly the way we want, the job we want, the, the spouse we want, the kids, you know, turning out exactly the way we want kids to, or, you know, the neoplatonic ideal of kid. But we don't, there's no guarantee of that in life. But with Jesus, we are always guaranteed a satisfying conclusion, different than a happy ending. And I'll talk about that and what that means in just a minute. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't always believe that with Jesus there's going to be a satisfying conclusion. Because I have this tendency to think the absolute worst is going to happen in any situation. The last time I went on study leave, five years ago, my wife and I spent two weeks in Italy. And when we left for the airport, we had to leave our kids alone for about 10 minutes before the babysitter arrived. My oldest was 11 at the time, very responsible, so, you know, it was legal, all of that. Besides, what could go wrong in 10 minutes, right? So we got to the airport, and I called to make sure that the babysitter had arrived, and she had. But my daughter said, Dad, a policeman came to the door and asked for you. Not Mom, you. But I didn't let him in, and he went away, and so that was that. And I said, well, good girl. So then I hung up the phone, and I thought, now, why would a policeman want me? <laughs> well, there could only be one possible answer. The church had obviously burned down, right? Like, there could be no other conclusion. That just had to be it, right? So I, I called the, the, the office, got the answering machine, so I knew down here the main building had not burned down, since that's where the office is. And then I thought, oh, no, the upper campus has burned down. So I tried to check my email, and it said, server unavailable. The server was in the upper campus. Conclusive proof that it had burned down. Like, what, more, what could be more clear than that? So I started freaking out. My wife tried to reason with me, right? And she said, look, if it's burned down, it'll still be burned down in Italy, but we'll be in a piazza somewhere sipping cappuccino and be way better able to handle it. <laughs> Compelling argument, right? Very rational argument. Right about then, over the loudspeaker, I hear, well, Scott Dudley, please come to the podium. And I'm like, oh, man, it's, it's just ashes, right? So I walk up, and I said to the woman, I went, what is it? Just like that, right? Poor woman behind the counter goes, it's an international flight. I need to see your passport. Oh, okay. Show her that. Tried to get on the email again, and I got my email. So I knew nothing had burned down. But to this day, I do not know why the police are looking for me. Okay. Your pastor is apparently a wanted man. I was so sure it was going to end badly, but it didn't. So between the disasters that we can imagine and the happily ever afters we are always striving for, which are usually created by our culture's idea of what will make us happy, Jesus has a third thing, a bigger, richer, deeper third way called a satisfying conclusion or satisfying conclusions which is what we see in the story about the death of Moses. 
Now, on the one hand, Hollywood, not, Hollywood would not write this this way. In one, in one sense, it's kind of this giant bummer. Because Moses has spent 40 years leading a whining, complaining group of people through the wilderness to bring them to the brink of the promised land, and he doesn't even get to go in. He gets to see it, but he can't go in. And the reason God gives is because way back when they were in the desert, they ran out of water, and God said to Moses, speak to this rock, and water will come out. But instead, Moses struck the rock with his staff, and God said, because you did that and disobeyed, you can't go into the promised land. Really? On a minor technicality? Really? Is God that cruel? Actually, I don't think so. Actually, I think this actually makes for just a better story, literarily, but also a much more satisfying conclusion. I mean, for starters, I mean, Moses is 120 years old at this point. I mean, give the man a rest, right? Like, does he have to lead him in as well? He got him out of slavery. God is not being cruel here. This is just, it shows what satisfying conclusions look like. And the first is this, satisfying conclusions are not about us getting everything we want in any given circumstance, but about being fully spent in a worthwhile cause. The text says this, Moses climbed to the top of Pisgah, there the Lord showed him the whole land as far as the Mediterranean Sea, and the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross into it. Now that doesn't sound to me like God is mad at him because he violated some technicality. Right? This is God saying to Moses, 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 you did it. Look, look all around you. We, we did it. I did it through you. Moses, after 40 years in the wilderness, after centuries of slavery, Moses, we did it. They're finally free. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Well done. Look around you. Not that everything is perfect, because it's not. Because just a few chapters earlier, God had said to Moses, you're going to rest with your ancestors, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. In other words, Moses, before your body is cold in the grave, these people are going to mess up royally. And do you know what Moses does right after this? Right after hearing this, he goes out and he blesses the people. That's not how Hollywood would write it. There's, it's, it's bittersweet. And yet there's something so noble, so honorable about Moses knowing that they're going to forsake God, but he blesses them anyway. Because he knows that, as I've told you before, the point of life is not to arrive at our funeral in a well-preserved corpse, but to skid in broadside, thoroughly used up, completely spent, shouting at the top of our lungs, thank you, Jesus, what a ride. What would a satisfying conclusion be to whatever problem you're going through right now? Whatever chapter you're in, or even just to this week that's coming up. Part of it would be that come Friday, you could look back and say, I spent myself in a worthwhile cause. Maybe that means to sacrifice some time to build a memory with your kids. Maybe that means to reach out to a coworker or a neighbor or a friend. But I guarantee you, if you pray this prayer every day this week, Jesus, show me an opportunity to do something noble and worthwhile, he will open your eyes and you'll see it. Second, second thing about satisfying conclusions is they're about experiencing God. The text says that Moses, the servant of the Lord, died, and he buried him in Moses. Who's the he? Like, it's God. Right? It's just Moses and God up there on that mountain. God himself, that's how close their relationship is. God himself buries Moses. See, Moses left it all in the field and in the process experienced God because he did it with God. If you arrive at an ending to something, that problem you're facing or this chapter in your life or your career or whatever it is, if you arrive at an ending in something, I don't care how happy it is, right? If God wasn't part of it along the way, it will not be satisfying. Which brings me to the third thing about satisfying conclusions, and that is they're about you don't spoil the ending. 
Now, most folks, if you're reading a book or you're watching a movie, they don't want to know how it ends, right? Even if you kind of know how it's going to, yeah, you know Frodo's going to destroy the ring, right? It's just that kind of movie. But the fun is kind of how he does it and along the way, the suspense, right? Nobody wants a spoiler. Nobody wants a spoiler. You know what spoils the story that God is writing in our lives? If we try to take control, if we become control freaks. Right? Now, right about now, some of you are like, well, this point's not for me because I'm not a control freak, you know, but sure hope my spouse is listening to this though, right? And you nudge, nudge. But the truth is most of us at some point, even if we're not control freaks in general, have at least one area of our lives we kind of control. Maybe it's our kids. Maybe it's our career. Maybe it's our spouse. And this is the issue with Moses striking the rock rather than speaking to the rock. God says this, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you cannot go into the land. The issue is trust. See, Moses didn't trust God, so he kind of took control, forced outcomes, tried to make things happen the way he thought they should happen, and in the process made it look like he brought the water from the rock rather than God. And when we over-control stuff, things just get messed up. <clears throat> when we lived in California, my wife had this friend who was getting married, but the friend's mom was like mom from hell, I and mean, just momzilla, right? Like everything had to be perfect, the flowers, the food, everything. And at one point, the daughter got so mad, she said, Mom, stop it. It's my wedding. And the mom said, no, the, it's your marriage. The wedding is mine. <laughs> I mean, wow, right? Like, but, you know, I mean, it came off great. Everything was perfect. The mom got the happy ending she was going for. But it could have been a whole lot more satisfying if maybe the flowers were a little messed up and the food wasn't quite, quite right. But she bonded with her daughter on a very important day in her daughter's life. When we control things, we mess up the story God's trying to write with our lives. And here's the thing. God gives us a lot of control in life. Tons of control, but he is also still the author. We are co-writing this story with him. And the adventure and the joy is not always knowing how things are going to end in life, but waiting to see what God is going to do. And the best way to do that is to, you know, because this is, I know I wrestle with control. Best way to do that is to pray a, a prayer it's been around for a long time, a lot of you know it, <clears throat> called the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept what I cannot change, courage to change what I can, and wisdom to know the difference. What's yours to control? What's God's to control? Work that out in prayer and with scripture and with good advice from others. Which brings me to the fourth thing about satisfying conclusions, and that is they're about empowering others. One of the most satisfying things in life is when you know, when someone looks at you and says, you have changed my life forever. After Moses dies, the text says, now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. And in the Hebrew, the grammar emphasizes Joshua, not Moses, because the baton has been passed. And it's now Joshua who's going to lead them into the promised land, not Moses. Now Hollywood would not have written it this way. Hollywood would have Moses go in. But that would have been a bad story. And it would have been bad for the Israelites. Because see, after 40 years of Moses, they needed to learn to trust a new leader. And had Moses not only gotten them out of slavery, but taken them into the promised land, they'd have thought it was Moses that did that, not God. But by transferring leadership to Joshua, it shows that the stable, the constant, is God. And God is the one doing this through different leaders. And Moses not only accepts that, he, he embraces it all throughout Exodus. You see Moses handing Joshua increasing responsibility so that when the time comes, Joshua is ready to lead. We can have happily ever afters that are all about us, but unless we know we've made a difference in someone's life, it will not be satisfying. Which brings me to the last 
thing about satisfying conclusions, and that is they always point to the fact that with Jesus there's always more. The text says, to this day, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And yet we know that there was one who came who was greater even than Moses, Jesus, or as he would have been called in the language of his day, Yeshua, in other words, Joshua. Jesus is just the Greek form of Joshua. Jesus' actual name was Joshua. So even here in Deuteronomy, we see a foreshadowing of the great deliverer, the one who will take us into the ultimate promised land. See, this wasn't the end of the story. It's hardly even the beginning. With God, there's always more. Even in heaven, there's stuff to do. Right? The Bible says even in heaven, heaven is not like this celestial retirement home, right? where we all sit around sipping on Mai Tais. I mean, there's probably going to be Mai Tais there. Don't get me wrong. But, but I mean, I'm hoping anyway. But, but I mean, you know, it's, it's more than that. There's stuff to do. There is a reason the universe is infinite, because there's an infinite amount of adventure to have an infinite amount of mysteries to begin to understand, an infinite amount of challenges and adventures and things to accomplish, even in heaven. In fact, Moses, because with God there's always more, and in fact Moses even does eventually get to set foot in the promised land, in what's called the transfiguration in the New Testament, where Moses and Elijah, the prophet, appear with Jesus and have a conversation with him. See, with God, there's always more. And Moses eventually does get to set foot in the promised land, but not as the leader of a bunch of whining and complaining people, but with Jesus by his side, which is always better than whining and complaining people. Right? And, and, and because with God, there is always more. And as we've seen throughout this whole sermon series, Moses' life foreshadows Jesus. At one point, God is angry with the Israelites because right after they got out of Egypt, he takes them immediately to the promised land, but they're afraid to go in. And so God says, I, they're a slave generation, a slave's mentality. I can't work with this generation. I've got to wait for this whole generation to die for a new generation to come up, to go into the land. So they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, whining and complaining all the way. At one point, God even says to Moses, do you want me to just wipe them out and start over? And Moses goes, no, 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 no. And he intercedes for the people, and then he takes their punishment. If they can't go in, he can't go in. He takes their punishment upon himself. Remind you of anyone? You're in a church. A good guess would be Jesus. Moses can't go in because this story does not end with Moses because with Jesus, there's always so much more. And you know, sometimes when we accomplish a goal, one of the things that happens is we go, oh, I, I, I've done it, now what? And we kind of get depressed, right? That's the problem with happily ever after. Nothing ever happens after, right? But truly satisfying endings will always point will always point to the next chapter so that you don't have to get depressed when you arrive at the end of something. Now, that doesn't mean there's no resolution, right? Because we are wired for resolution. And if we don't get resolution, it kind of drives us nuts, right? Two weeks ago in this service, afterwards I was back there shaking hands as, as y'all were leaving, and I saw a couple that I had, I'd, I'd had several conversations with, so I hugged them and said, hugged both of them and said hello. And the guy had recently given me some weightlifting advice, and so I said to him, man, that advice you gave me was really awesome. I mean, I can really feel the burn, right? And then I went over to the sanctuary to preach over there at 11 o'clock, and as I was preaching, I noticed this same couple was over there, right? And I thought, oh, how, how nice. They came back to hear the sermon a second time. Right? This is all happening in my head as I'm preaching. And then I thought, wait a minute. Nobody comes back to hear the sermon a second time. Right? And then it dawned on me. It was a different couple. I had hugged the wrong couple. Total, complete strangers. Right? Which would explain the look on their face, which looked kind of confused when I hugged both of them. Right? Especially when I said to the guy, I can really feel the burn. 
He's like, whatever, creepy pastor dude. See, this is why I don't hug people. It always ends badly. Now, in my defense, it's kind of dark in here, right? And people were moving by really quickly, and I have facial recognition issues, clearly, right? But I need, I need, you know, sometimes I worry I'm going to run out of sermon illustrations. I am my own inexhaustible supply. So I've spent the last two weeks trying to find them to explain, but I haven't seen them since. They were probably first-time visitors, right? So I have no resolution, but if you're out there, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm looking for resolution. Satisfying conclusions always have a resolution, but they also point to the fact that with Jesus, there's always more. So here's your homework. I want you to ask yourself, I'm going to do the same thing this week. Ask two questions. Review your last week, the decisions you made, how you reacted to people in your life. What motivated you to do and say those things? Were you going for a happily ever after? Things that everything you want, things our culture says you got to have, were you going for a happily ever after or God's satisfying conclusions? And then second, ask God to show you what a satisfying conclusion might be to whatever season you're in right now, that problem you're dealing with, that person you're dealing with, that goal you have. Ask him to show you the difference between our culture's happily ever after and his satisfying conclusions. Even if it's just to your upcoming week, what would that look like? How can you pursue something worthwhile? Invite God into it. Don't over-control. Empower others and know that with Jesus there's always more. As you know, because many of you have journeyed with me in this over the last year, and I'm, I'm so grateful for the ways you've done that, as this has been a season of loss for me having lost two really important mentors in my life, people I loved very much. My mentor of over 35 years, Steve Hayner, who at 66 died way too young. But the blog he wrote as he went through his battle with cancer and reflections on death and dying inspired literally thousands of people, so inspiring they're now being published as a book. That is not the happily ever after I wanted for him, for me, for anyone, but it was a life extraordinarily well-led. And the same with my predecessor here, Dick Leon, who, as I told you at Easter, literally with his last breath, literally with his last breath, inspired a struggling teenager who'd made some mistakes in her life to change her life. With his last breath, literally, still changing lives. Those are not happily ever afters, but there's something beautiful and meaningful and deep about them. So much courage, so empowering of others, so much letting go of control and letting Jesus be king because that's what Jesus does best. Or I think of a man named Pastor Cho, Korean pastor of the largest church in the world. But as a small boy during World War II, experienced terrible atrocities and the murder of his family from the Japanese army. And he always said to God, I will serve you anywhere except Japan because he was so bitter. But through challenges from friends, nudges from God, finally through an urgent invitation, he ended up preaching at a Japanese pastor's conference in Japan. But when he got up to speak, something just overwhelmed him. And almost involuntarily, he looks out at these thousand pastors and he starts to say, I hate you. I hate you. I want you to know, I hate you. And there was this long, very awkward pause, because what do you do with that, right? <laughs> and then one, and then two, and then almost all of the 1,000 pastors, one by one, knelt at his feet and asked forgiveness for what their people had done to him. 
And as this went on, Pastor Cho said, God changed his heart. And over and over again, he started saying to them, I love you, I love you, I love you. And in a moment, he was free of a lifetime of bondage. Not exactly a happily ever after. Too much pain, too much loss. And yet so much redemption and wholeness and God's bigger, better, richer, deeper reward because Pastor Cho followed God's nudges to go to Japan even when he didn't want to. And those pastors were faithful to ask for forgiveness. They spent themselves on something worthwhile, experienced closeness with God, let go of control, empowered each other, and knew that with Jesus there's always more because he's never done. When you're in the hospital, he's not done. When you're laid off, he's not done. When you break up with someone you care about, he's not done. When someone you love dies, he's not done. When you get the promotion, he's not done. When you have the new baby, he's not done. When you get married, he's not done. When you finish the race, he's not done. He's never done because with Jesus, there is always, always more. And step by step, he will lead you from one satisfying conclusion to another, to another, on and on, forever. Here's the thing. As I've said before, one of these days, you're going to die. I am too. It happens to all of us. They're going to take you to the cemetery. They're going to dig a hole. They're going to drop it. you in it. They're going to throw dirt in your face. And then everyone's going to go back to the church and eat potato salad. It comes to that. And the question is, will you have had a series of happily ever afters as defined by our culture? Or will you have a beautiful collection of satisfying conclusions, knowing that even the grave is not the end with Jesus? So what's it going to be this week? Happily ever after? or satisfying conclusions. And because Jesus is never done, I'm going to pick that thought up when I get back later this summer. I'm going to start a sermon series I think you're going to like a lot. I can't wait to preach it. I will see you in August. So Jesus, lead us into those satisfying conclusions because left to our own devices, we will manipulate, we will will, we will control our way to a happily ever after as defined by us in our culture. But Jesus, we ask that step by step you lead us into your satisfying conclusions, whatever that might be, to this week. And Lord, we will give you all the glory and all the praise. In your name, amen.